Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, despite expert advice, Premier Ford has announced that Ontario schools will remain closed to in-person learning until the fall. We get reaction to that decision from Harvey Bischoff, president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. Hamilton City Council is more divided than ever as they left a six-hour debate yesterday with an uncertain fate for Hamilton's LRT. What needs to happen to get them on side and to finally make a decision? And the discovery of 215 children's remains in the B.C. residential school system has revived the discussion which law experts say was a genocide against Indigenous peoples. Could Canada face legal consequences? It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with today, the announcement from uh, Premier Ford yesterday, we knew that uh, the Premier had sent a letter to his quote-unquote health experts saying, give me your advice before I decide whether or not we're going to open the schools. That, that was the story last week. And subsequently to that, we uh, have on this program talked to Dr. Peter Uni, of course, who is the director of the Science Table, the advisory board that the province formed. Uh, Dr. David Williams, of course, the chief medical officer, and a number of other agencies said, yes, uh, the numbers are down, the trending is down, it's safe to send the kids back to school. So those are the experts. So with that advice in hand, yesterday the Premier announced he's not going to open the schools again. They're going to stay closed until at least the fall. Global's Brianna Carnegie has the details. It has been over six weeks since kids have been learning from home in this latest closure, and today they were told to hold on a while longer. It was a hard choice to make. But I will not, and I repeat, I will not take unnecessary risks with our children right now. Medical officers of health in a GTHA and Ontario's top doctor have recently said they could manage safely reopening schools. But Premier Doug Ford says the input he received from other experts was not enough to reassure him. All I've heard from the docs, and we've all heard the same thing, indoors bad, outdoors good. Indoors bad, outdoors good. And we're going to put 2 million kids, uh, Dr. Brown's already said, we're going to see an increase as high as 11%. Students will have a chance to see their friends in person before summer, though, with Ford allowing outdoor graduations and other events. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. Uh, a lot of disconcerting parents and, and teachers and everyone else has been weighing in on this for the last little while, but we want to give some context to this and uh, understand exactly what the decision means and what the ramifications are. Uh, to that end, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Harvey Bischoff. Harvey is the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. Uh, Harvey, thanks so much for the time on a very busy day. Glad you could join us today. Yeah, glad to be with you. Thanks. Were you surprised by the announcement yesterday? Well, in as much as we'd heard for a couple of days before that, you know, that was sort of the backroom chatter. No, we weren't surprised anymore by the announcement, but I was, you know, when, when we first heard that that's the direction we were going, absolutely surprised considering the broad consensus for at least a, re, a regional reopening strategy. Uh, were you consulted? Were the teachers at all consulted? He didn't talk much about that yesterday, but the week before that, he said he wanted to hear from teachers, but he says, you know, they're, they're giving us a hard time. He really got into a bit of a diatribe about that, too. Was there any discussion at all? So for uh, just about the first time, we were actually included on that letter last uh, yep. last Thursday. We were asked for our input. Um, you know, we were given 32 hours to provide our input, so people can judge for themselves whether this was really a meaningful consultation. I've got a different theory. But yes, we were asked and we recommended, um, the four uh, education unions together, recommended a regional reopening strategy. 
And that's key. I, I want people to understand this because I know that there are some hot spots, Peel region and, in, and even around the Toronto area, uh, where it may not make sense. But Dr. Uni told us, your uh, group told us, of course, the Teachers Federation and others said, look, you do this regionally. Probably 90% of the province can do this safely. There might be a few spots that maybe can't. Uh, but instead of just throwing a blanket over everything, I mean, that's, this is, I think, what really surprised an awful lot of people. Yeah, I just, I, I, I can't understand it. I mean, I, I didn't even understand the April 12th announcement to close schools and cross the entire province. There were places where we absolutely wanted schools to close because the the case numbers and the positivity rates in, in you know, a number of communities uh, in the province were, were deeply worrying. Um, but there are places in the province where that kind of risk just didn't apply. Um, and then you balance it against the, what are the risks of kids being left at home, and we've heard uh, we've heard plenty about that with regard to social emotional development, with regard to to you know mental health, but even you know with things like like um, there's fewer reports of of um, abuse because there aren't uh, educators there to spot it who might be the ones who report it to you know CAS for example. Um, there is worsening levels of of uh, eating disorders, and again there's you know the less intervention in those things. So there is absolutely risk on the side of leaving kids at home. I was surprised uh, when the Premier made his announcement, though, Harvey, that he spent very little time talking about that. And there, there is, as you've just alluded to, a, a strong body of evidence to indicate the harm that's being done to, to the students and kids, elementary and high school students, uh, by not, not allowing them back into the classroom right now. And you've, you've touched on some of them, the eating disorders, the mental stress. Uh, the, the, I think it's a 400% increase in the number of calls to the, to the hotline. Uh, there, there's evidence of this. This is not anecdotal. This is a, a crisis that doctors are talking about, yet it didn't seem to weigh too heavily on, on the decision that the Premier came up with. No, and there's, and there's also evidence of, of uh, the long-term effects of, of learning loss. Um, and we know educators are trying their best with this remote learning, but it's not as good as face-to-face. Um, and you can quantify what are the lifelong uh, earnings effects on students who fall behind um, in their academic achievement. And so what that points to is, once again, we've got a short-term decision from this Premier. What he's looking at, uh, I have no doubt, trying to get you know, various aspects of the economy reopened earlier, and he, know he, could, he knew he couldn't do both that and reopen schools at the same time, so he chose reopening the economy. Um, except that in the long run, that's not going to do Ontario's economy any good. In fact, it's going to it's going to damage it. So, uh, you know, short term thinking from this premier has been kind of his hallmark, and we just saw it again. Well, and and very selective in his rationale for this. I mean, you know, you heard him yesterday. You know, inside bad, outside good. Oh, that's kind of quaint. But the other element that he did not include was what Dr. Williams and Dr. Uni and so many others, Dr. Bogosh, have said, is that schools should be the last ones to close and the first things to open if there's going to be a lockdown. Well, apparently he didn't heed that advice. It, exactly. Exactly. So you know, doing the folksy uncle thing at the podium again yesterday with with talking about you know the reducing it to to inside bad, outside good, um, doesn't take into account anything like the full scope of what he was given from the medical experts and, and you know, as we talked about, the risks for kids. Um, and you know what? Um, 
maybe his story about about Arthur's influence on his thinking uh, didn't really do him that much good either. Um, you know, I think we're looking for something a little bit more sophisticated than that. Well, sure. And and by the way, if outside is good, how come? Uh, first of all, the kids can't go to school. Uh, they can't play organized sports. Uh, they can't go any place. They're not supposed to go on any of the playing fields right now. So outside's not so good in Ontario. It, it's hard to reconcile, isn't it? It really is when you start looking at that and, and maybe throwing a few facts into this. There's a couple of other things here, Harvey, that I wanted to get your read on. Uh, part of his rationalization for this, uh, which kind of surprised me, was he says that uh, he would feel a lot better and wanted to have all the teachers and all students uh, over the age of 12 vaccinated before he opens the schools again. Uh, I, that was news to me. I mean, that's the first time I've ever heard that he wanted to see that sort of a campaign. And, and my initial reaction to that was, why haven't you started that already? If, if you want to see teachers getting vaccinated in mass numbers and students, uh, you close the schools in April. You could have started that then. And if you're going to do a program like that, would it not make sense to have them back in school so they can get everybody in one place and vaccinate them? It, it's just been so typical of the way he's operated. Um, we hear we hear him express what are essentially wishes, and he pretends that those are plans. Um, it's not unlike what they've said about asymptomatic testing. We've got a, we've got you know Minister Lecce claiming over and over again that they have this asymptomatic testing program. And you take a look, and there was a recent uh, media report following on a freedom of information request that shows just what a complete and utter failure that program has been. Uh, over months, they barely got to the to the level to the numbers that they were supposed to get to every single week. And it's the same thing for vaccinations. Like, we can have a wish for educators to be vaccinated, but unless you actually have a plan, unless you have implementation, unless you roll it out in a way that gives people uh, reasonably convenient access to those vaccines, um, it doesn't amount to anything. And, and that's where we are right now with the vaccination strategy. I think it was just, it was another deflection. It was another um, unstated rationale uh for him really wanting to open parts of the economy rather than the school system. Well, yeah, and, and as you say, it's a, it's a wish list. I mean, there's there's no program in place. There's no you know effort to say, okay, let's get all the teachers vaccinated. We don't even, know, I guess, quantify that. I mean, we don't even have a number of, of, of teachers that have been vaccinated. We have that. I don't think there's any statistical evidence to prove that. I mean, a lot of Ontarians have received at least a first dose. And I'm assuming a lot of those people are teachers. I saw a few of them that I knew uh, just the other day when we had a clinic in, in downtown Hamilton, free clinic for a couple of days. Uh, so we know that, but if for him to suggest that that's going to be a factor here, uh, again, I think you and I have had the same discussion for about the last eight months now. Show me the statistical evidence to validate what you're doing. Yeah, and you know, both Ford uh, and Dr. Williams have thrown around numbers about about teacher vaccination in particular, um, with absolutely no support for those numbers. Um, and in fact, I mean, I've gotten my I, I got my first uh, vaccine some number of weeks ago. They did not ask me my occupation. Lots of educators have gotten vaccinations and were not asked their occupation. So once again, they're not actually tracking. Um, and and in the absence of data, you can't make good decisions. So where do, where do you go now? I mean, let's talk about the impact on students and and at the high school level and the elementary school level, uh, and and the impact that these closures are having, uh, the mental health issues that you've talked about, the physical issues that are starting to manifest themselves. The experts I've talked to and, and, and over the last couple of weeks about this, Harvey, tell us that look at. Even if they go back to school in September now, which seems to be his plan, although I guess that's an option to change too, uh, you can't just throw a switch and say, okay, everybody's happy now and everybody's 
cured. This is you guys, meaning the teachers, are going to get left with the baggage to try to fix all of this stuff because these are children that are being negatively impacted, and that sort of thing just doesn't go away. And and you've just pointed to what is absolutely my biggest worry right now. Um, uh, you know, I've been saying for some time you need a strategy in place to remediate the the gaps, the losses, the uh, you know, the disruption that kids have lived through for, for over a year now. Some kids will have really fallen far behind. Uh, as a group, on average, they will have, you know, they'll be suffering certain losses. You need a strategy for, for how do you, how do you bring kids back up to speed? How do you address, uh, the social emotional difficulties that have arisen? What is the plan for that? And I'm not hearing one whatsoever from this Minister of Education, and that is, that's, I mean, sincerely distressing to me. Um, I met a couple of weeks ago with a couple of pediatricians. We were talking about, you know, openings and closures and so forth, and we didn't agree on everything. But I did say to them, look, if we don't get together and lead on what the next school year is going to look like, nobody's going to do it because this minister is clearly uh, in over his head, has given no thought to what it's going to mean. Um, you know, when kids return to school in September and need to be supported to get back up to speed, uh, I've seen nothing by way of, of uh, that discussion. One of the other points you brought up, which I found rather surprising, too, for the, his rationalization and justification for not opening the schools again, uh, were, were the, the structures, the, the, the bricks and mortar structures of the school themselves, suggesting that, you know, we're getting into the hot weather right now, uh, you know, it's indoors, uh, you know, the, there's, the systems are not really made for this sort of thing, a lot of them don't have air conditioning, there's air circulation problems. Harvey, this is not a new problem. You talked about this last year, and the government made a commitment then to do something about it, and clearly they haven't done it, and now he's using that as justification. It's, yeah. I mean, try to follow the bouncing ball in these arguments, but, you know, last summer when we, uh, when we challenged um, the safety of schools, uh, they told us absolutely there is no problem with ventilation in schools. It's good. And then when they got money from the federal government, they said, we're going to spend it on improving ventilation which they previously said didn't need to be improved. And now they're saying, you know, uh, a year later that this is a concern that's going to, to affect the ability of kids to return to class. It, you know, I mean, h- how do you even make sense of this? And it's not as if the cash, I mean, as you mentioned, the, the money was on the table. The feds actually kicked money into every province uh, for some of these infrastructure improvements. And, you know, now he's, he's admitting to the fact that he has not done the work in the schools that he promised he was going to do, just like we found out about two weeks ago that the commitment he had made to get air conditioning and long-term care facilities hasn't happened yet either. And there's still some concerns about air circulation systems there too. So, I mean, it's it's his government that's falling down on the job here, and then he's just going to use that and say, well, we can't afford this. And I knew he was going to circle around and talk about immigration, which he got around to. That seems to be his theme over the last couple of weeks. Uh, but, you know, the old adage about, you know, clean up your own backyard before you start throwing darts at somebody else, I think, really comes into play here. Yeah, it's not as if, I mean, you know, with that, 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 uh, that issue with the borders, the feds didn't suddenly change things. So these were the conditions in Ontario, and it was up to him to deal with them, and he clearly absolutely failed to do so. The fact that, you know, he thinks borders are porous is no excuse for his absolute disastrous handling of the second and third waves of, of this pandemic, because those were the conditions and, and they needed to be adapted to, and he failed to do so. And then and you see that failure on the ground in things like long-term care and in the schools where there's just a refusal to address problems that we have known about uh, for some time. 
that refusal repeatedly seems to come down to a kind of nickel and diming approach, which, you know, when you take that, uh, you take that approach to a pandemic, well, we've seen the results. Well, it's unfortunate, and uh, we're obviously getting a lot of pushback and feedback from an awful lot of people on this stuff. Harvey, we'll stay in touch. Uh, thanks so much for the time. Stay well, and uh, hopefully we can talk again soon. Yep, thanks. Same to you, Bill. Take care. Harvey Bishop, president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. And and therein lies the problem, and there is the point that we really need to focus on. I just got a couple of texts from people saying, well, yeah, yeah, the uh, the opposition parties, you know, the NDP is starting bragging. I don't care what the other politicians are saying. It's it, totally immaterial. I'm caring about what the people who are in charge of our children's education are saying like Harvey Bischoff. I'm caring about what the medical experts who are in charge of our children's well-being, mental and physical, are saying. And they're saying this was the wrong decision. And we're going to have to live with the consequences of that, sadly. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, another chapter in the uh, LRT discussion, debate, uh, controversy, uh, fail on your own word here. Yesterday, of course, virtual meeting with Hamilton City Councilors and uh, representatives from the Ministry of Transportation and Metrolinx who are in charge of this. And, uh, well, the meeting was called, we were told, uh, to try to get some more information about uh, the announcement that was made a few weeks ago now by both the federal and provincial governments that they were ponying up an awful lot of money, $3.4 billion, uh, for a light rail transit system for Hamilton. And uh, that's going to be shared, of course, by the feds and the province. And uh, both ministers, of course, Minister McKenna from the, the federal government and Minister Mulroney from the uh, provincial government, made it pretty clear that day, I think crystal clear that day, that the money was for light rail transit only, not for bus rapid transit, not for any other infrastructure, light rail transit. Notwithstanding, as I watched some of the live stream yesterday uh, with city councillors, there's still a few of them that just don't seem to get that message. And we're still thinking that, well, maybe we can ask them for this. The answer is already no. Uh, but I don't know that they got a whole lot of clarity on some of the other points that they were seeking information about yesterday, and that's kind of the problem as well. Uh, but one thing was crystal clear. If we got that message from the two ministers the day the announcement was made, uh, it was underscored yesterday. James Nolan is the Assistant Deputy Minister for the Ministry of Transportation, and he reiterated that the provincial and federal funding to build Hamilton's LRT can't be used for anything else. I'm not going to kind of engage in hypothetical discussions because that is the project and federal government have identified funding for and support for to take forward. So, uh, and again, I, I don't know if some people had their mics turned off or their headsets turned off because a few of the councillors just didn't seem to get the message. Uh, but uh, some legitimate questions still to be asked, especially when it comes down to uh, the impact this is going to have on the Hamilton tax base. Uh, to uh, bring us up to speed, bro, so pleased to welcome back to the program Chad Collins, City Councillor for Ward 5 in the east end of the city, uh, which includes, by the way, Eastgate Square, which is going to be uh, one of the end points or the beginning point, I guess, depending on your perspective, uh, if, in fact, this project gets underway. Chad, thanks so much for the time good to, good to have you back in the program today thanks for having me back bill you uh, you were on the show a couple of weeks ago and you raised some very serious concerns this was the day after the announcement by the feds in the province mm -hmm. uh and you wanted some answers did did you get any new information yesterday no we i don't think we did um well they're, they're representatives of the government I, I think you made some very valid statements there on the lead-in to our discussion in terms of you know what the alternatives might be these uh you know the representatives that were in front of us yesterday are representatives of the government and they represent uh, their priorities and right now the province um, is um, is on track with 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 building this project and so I didn't anticipate any kind of uh, waffling on their part as it relates to the government's commitment and so in that regard um, it's not a question 
question that I wanted to ask because I didn't think uh, we were asking the right people. That's that's something to ask the premier, who has um, you know pushed for this project most recently over the last couple of months. In terms of what we learned yesterday, um, you know, not much. I, I think they reiterated that the city is on the hook for six hundred million dollars over the next uh, thirty years. Uh, they reiterated that um, you know they're trying to get this done as soon as possible. Most of the comments were fifty thousand foot level answers, and I, I didn't in, I didn't expect any answers that would um, you know be critical of the project and or uh, cast cast some doubt in terms of you know what the future holds for it if if it's um, if it's put out to tender and if it's eventually constructed. Some questions that I, I, I thought were very germane to the discussion, though, and, and one of the ones that, uh, that resonated with me anyway uh, was from Councillor Ferguson, the Ancaster Councillor, who was talking about the, the design and where this is actually going to go and uh, how you can get out of the, the downtown area at the end of the day. Uh, it's going to be very, very difficult because it's probably only going to be one lane of traffic on King Street, uh, and the, the alternatives are really not very palatable. I mean, Cannon Street still is going to get bottlenecked because eventually uh, you have to get up onto the highway from there. So uh, Dundurn Street is backed up all the way back to York Boulevard every day at 4 o'clock anyway. So, uh, and, and the answer that, that he was given to that question basically was, yeah, we haven't figured that out yet. We'll have to have that discussion. Well, I think it, it should have advanced a little more beyond that, don't you? Absolutely. And, I, I, you know, we... I think, you know, overshadowing all the details associated with this project has just been the yes and no debate that's occurred. And you've covered it for years now, Bill. Um, you know, lost in all of this discussion about whether we should have it or shouldn't have it are the details in terms of its impact on the community. What, what impact will it have specifically on the downtown? What impact will it have on some communities like Councillor Ferguson, who mentioned his constituents trying to get home from work? Um, what, what impacts will it have on adjacent neighbourhoods? To the line as it relates to not just during construction, but when and if the LRT is in, un, is in operation. And then what happens to the businesses along the line? I mean, that's been extensively covered, not recently, but in the past as it relates to, you know, the, the four or five year construction project that ends up, you know, taking some p- people out of business. And and um, and so there's those, those growing pains, if you want to call it that, that have been extensively covered in the past, but because this project was cancelled, and is is back in front of us again. Same issues um, are, are are back, and as you've noted, that many of them are unresolved. Well, and and one of them is traffic flow. And I know that some of your colleagues on council chat are uh, just you know they they say, well, this is all about public transit. We get that, and it's it's not about vehicular traffic. And they they almost view this as a as a as a, a competition between cars and, and public transit. I mean, we both need to be there. We're both going to share the road. Cars and, and trucks are not going away anytime soon. Uh, but the characterization that I heard yesterday from I can't remember which one of the fellows. I think from uh, from Metrolinx. Uh, was that when all is said and done, if they build this thing, uh, King Street is essentially going to be a secondary road, uh, simply because it's not going to be able to hold any volume of traffic, which begs the question, and you've seen this many years on council, if you close a road down like that or eliminate the traffic or uh, possibility, they're going someplace else, and where is that going to be? And and what impacts is it going to have on the neighboring neighborhoods? Yeah, no, you're exactly right. There's a domino effect here, and... and from the start, this project, you know, it was first advertised as rapid transit, and it was, um, you know, rapid transit. You and I, I think, both been, we've been to uh, communities in other parts of Canada and other parts of, of the U.S. And, and elsewhere in the world where rapid transit gets you from A to B in the quickest way possible. And traditionally, in cities like New York and Toronto and others, if you take the subway or you take a higher-order transit, 
you're getting there quicker than you would if you took your, your own personal vehicle. It's a yep. nightmare to drive through Manhattan. I've done it once. I'll never do it again. <laughs> and it's a nightmare sometimes, depending on where you are in Toronto and what time of the day, to get through the downtown or, or even on the periphery. So higher order transit makes sense in those communities where you have traffic congestion and traffic problems. We don't have that here in Hamilton. Not yet. And what we heard yesterday and what we've heard in the past is, well, you just wait until you see what happens 20 to 30 years from now. Hamilton's growth is you're going to you're part of the GTA. You're going to see traffic congestion. And so you better build this now, even though you don't need it now. And it's not justified or warranted now because it's, there's no problem, Bill, for people in the East End to get to McMaster. And if you're taking the B-Line bus, as I did as a student attending McMaster, it took me about half an hour to get to school. Um, if you were to take my, if I take my personal, uh, if I, sorry, if I take the LRT now to, to get to McMaster from Eastgate, I'm going to save probably three to four minutes. That's not much of an incentive for people to get out of their vehicles and get on higher order transit. And, and so that debate, I think, was by the wayside many years ago. We haven't talked about the comparison times between B-Line and LRT for some time because it wasn't resonating with the public and it wasn't resonating with transit users in Hamilton. And so then that we were on to the infrastructure debate. Well, think of all the infrastructure that this project has to offer. And that didn't go very well because people know when you dig up the roads and sidewalks, you have to replace them. And many of those roads along the route have already been done. I know my area on Queenston Road was done just a few short years ago. So it's, it's, there's no deficiencies there. And now we're on to the economic development debate. And it's, well, you know, transit may not be what, what pulls you into supporting this. And the infrastructure may not. So let's talk about all the development you're going to get. And, and, we, and I, we haven't seen that. We haven't seen that in other communities, although some have advertised that that's the case. And, uh, and we haven't seen that in downtown. We, I mean, we, we're seeing record level of development without LRT. And so I think we, we continue to see certain arguments being made, many of them unrelated to transit now, because that just it, it doesn't hold up to the beeline. And, and I think that's the problem that we're in right now. We, we have this is being done for all the wrong reasons. It's become a very politicized project, as, as big projects sometimes can. It happens. Uh, but we're doing it for all the wrong reasons. And, and the theme I'm hearing from my constituents is, Chad, of all the things that council could adopt or any other levels of government as the priority, as the post-pandemic priority for Hamilton, you chose the LRT. We have businesses that need our help. We have an affordable housing crisis. There's no shortage of infrastructure issues, and you're putting all your you're putting all of your resources in one transit line, and it's it's a real head scratcher. So I know there's a lot of political things going on in the background. I know a lot of deals are being cut, and that's just the nature of you know sometimes that's the way politics works. It's not right. It's not right that Hamilton's going to be the only city in the country that doesn't get to be a part of the discussion, including our residents as to what's best for Hamilton from an infrastructure perspective post-pandemic. You and, and a number of your colleagues, of course, have been skeptical about this right from the get-go, and, and, and you've been pretty consistent about that. But what I noticed yesterday as I was watching part of the live stream, and uh, even some of the people that I, I kind of, you know, have checked off as supportive of this still have some very serious questions. I don't, I don't necessarily know if their support is wavering or not, but things mm-hmm. I, 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 I sense some frustration uh, from some of the 
of your colleagues yesterday because they're not getting the kind of information they think they should be getting at this yeah. stage. You know, it's it's yeah. it's wonderful for them to say, you know, what we could be in the ground by next year, and that's that's super stuff. But what about yeah. these other costs? And and one of the ones that I know you talked about and a number of your colleagues did was this mm-hmm. whole idea about covering the operating costs. It's good. The estimate they gave you was about twenty million dollars annually for that. Uh, you mm-hmm. think that's low? Well, we, what we we heard from the minister when she announced the project. It was thirty million annually. Yesterday, we heard from Metrolinks. Well, it's actually twenty million annually. And then we heard a political statement yesterday. This could all be a wash. You know, we're going to get so much development. This isn't going to cost the city anything. And I don't know if there's any one of your viewers who believes that, um, because there wasn't anyone around the table who believes this is coming for free. And and we're also concerned, Bill, about the op- the capital costs. And so we're this project is now three and a half times its original cost. The $3.4 billion is a 2019 number, and someone might say, well, you're not paying for it, so what do you care? Well, I think, you know, you have, to put, you have to put it into perspective in terms of these are resources that could be used for other priorities, could be. And we're also concerned about if, if as it was the case the first time around with the LRT, it's disclosed that this project is now four or five times the cost, what are we left with again? Another political decision at the province to say, do we, do we invest that additional money? Um, and, 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 and now we're four or five times the cost, or do we start looking at ways and means in which to, to, to um, compensate for that? And we witnessed the first time around, Premier Ford said, well, we're going to take it to Gage Park. That's all we have money for. Or, as they've done in other communities, they start eliminating stops. And that's a concern for us because, you know, if you're going to if you're going to build something, it, it really has to be done right. And and so from an operating perspective, I don't think we're there's full transparency here in terms of what it's going to cost the city. The fact that politically some people are saying this is going to be a, a wash, it's not going to cost anything, I think is laughable. And the fact that we're now three and a half times the capital cost from 2019 numbers, knowing where inflation's at, Bill, if you've tried to if your you know, listeners are trying to build a deck right now or they're doing some home improvements, the cost of materials and supplies are through the roof. Yep. Steel, lumber, and, and, and the trades, the skilled trades are in short supply. Um, there's no shortage of jobs out there. And, and you and I both know that w- during an economic downturn, um, federal and provincial governments look to put money out into the community to get people working again. And we're on the verge of probably seeing another infrastructure program projects like the LRT, projects like the affordable housing money that we received recently, all of those announcements um, have the ability to drive prices up and create shortages from a labor perspective. So we're all cognizant of that around the table. And I think those questions need to be asked, the what-if scenarios. And I'm, I'm concerned that the first time around, the province didn't disclose that it gravitated, the price for the project gravitated from $1 billion to something much larger than that. So my question yesterday was, how can we be kept in the loop as it relates to rising costs, as it relates to increased costs from an operating perspective? And I, I really didn't get the answer that I was looking for. I was hoping that we'd be assured that we'd be, that we'd be kept in the loop and, and, um, and that we just didn't get those answers. One of the things that I know that uh, the motion to, to defer for another couple of weeks uh, wanted uh, to get some information about was, as you say, the potential for economic development. And I'll, I'll, I don't know if it's an apples to apples comparison, but you, mm-hmm. you were on council back in the day when with the Red Hill debate was going on about the expressway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and when it looked as if we had finally gotten over the hump there, there was a huge amount of land uh, investment of, up on the South Mountain, as we well know. The, and because uh, people were anticipation of the road being built. Uh, finally, finally, 
years and years and years later, we got the road built, and you've seen what's happened there. The development just went crazy up there. And the, well, they call it the Meadowlands East. There's all sorts of development. It's a great success story. That yeah, they're they're investing. They're paying property taxes. Everybody's happy. The city's happy. Is there any indication that you're seeing anything along the the, the proposed route for the LRT, uh, at least even in the early stages? Well, you, you make a great statement there, Bill. You've put it perfectly into context because everything you just spoke to was an investment to get commercial and industrial tax dollars. And you know that over the years, as we've lost the major uh, manufacturing plants that with globalization, we, our quest has been as a council to try to recover from, with, a, from, with additional commercial opportunities and industrial. We know that it's not sustainable to to grow the community and grow our tax base with just residential. That's what's occurring right now in Hamilton. That's happening in the GTA. It's happening really all, all across Canada. And, and so our reliance on residential is problematic. And, 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 this is the, and the investments that come with LRT are residential. There's, no, there's really no commercial. There's certainly no industrial. And so I, I, I don't think it's part of our economic development plan to say that we're going to the biggest infrastructure project the city has from the province and the federal government will be into, you know, building small and medium-sized uh, residential units along one transit line. It just doesn't make sense. It's not part of our plan. Our plan is to, to attract jobs to the community, not just construction jobs, but full-time jobs for people who are working, as you just mentioned, in the Red Hill Business Park. They're working in our business parks in all areas of the city. And, and those are jobs that are hopefully, with the Amazon investments and others that we've seen locally, those are jobs that are here for a long time. They're not just here to build something and then they move on. They're actually people who live in Hamilton or on the periphery of Hamilton. They're not uh, large construction companies like we noticed with the stadium where firms from outside of the city came into town, built the stadium, and then left with little benefit to Hamilton workers or Hamilton skilled trades. And so I would argue that um, I don't see the, the comparison as the same as it relates to Red Hill and LRT. Red Hill was to kickstart the city's business parks, which, as you just mentioned, was accomplished on Stony Creek Mountain and elsewhere. And uh, the LRT is one that's going to encourage residential intensification, which is certainly, um, uh, I, I think, a benefit. But I, it's certainly, when you look at the investment we're making, $3.4 billion and the annual operating costs, hard to justify. going to be an interesting meeting on the 16th. We'll see what happens. Chad, as always, thanks so much for the time. Really do appreciate it. Thanks, Bill. Have a good day. Take care. Chad Collins, of course, the uh, city council for Ward 5 out in the east end of the city. It's it's problematic here, and, and I know there are some people that are just dead set against this project. I get that, especially on city council. And we heard from a lot of them over the course of the uh, six-hour, I guess it was, meeting yesterday. But there's some people that are pivotal here, these swing votes that are maybe supportive, but if you don't come forward with all the information and ask, answer the questions that are being asked, uh, you had a chance of losing those votes and, and killing this project. There's got to be more transparency and and, and, and more factual data for this. And when it comes to things like the operating costs, uh, and, and what about the you know, projections for fare? In, you know, the, the fare box is going to go to the city, that's great. But what are the projections for ridership? Because that's going to determine just how big that number is going to be. Those are things that need to be discussed, and, and those answers need to be available before these councillors are going to make a decision. And probably in about two weeks, they're going to be forced to vote on this. And if in the absence of information, I, I'm not so sure some of them may just fall offside on this. We'll see. Lots more to talk about in the weeks ahead. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We want to talk about the the tragedy that uh, was unearthed, of course, uh, some days ago now, of course, in Kamloops, the residential school over in British Columbia. And, and 
the 215 remains of, of the children there is, is disturbing in, in so many ways, uh, but it seems to have shed the light on, uh, I, I guess, something that's been going on for quite some time. And uh, it's starting to now get some reaction, not just from our federal government, but from the United Nations, who are using terms and, and suggesting this is a genocide that needs to be investigated. We're going to talk about that in just a couple of seconds. Uh, federal Justice Minister David Lametti says that he's open to the idea of considering different legal avenues when it comes to residential schools with burial grounds. In an interview with the Canadian Press, Lametti says that he's uh, received a request to look at what legal levers may exist to ensure that these sites are protected. Is there potential for, for um, in terms of protecting the sites themselves uh, from tampering, protecting them really as sacred ground where, where people are buried, or, or again, we're looking at uh, taking our cues from Indigenous peoples. Is there a way to, to criminalize the behavior of people who, who go against it? Joining us to talk about this is a Bruno Jelena Fauché, who is a law professor at the University of Montreal and a PhD candidate in international law at the University of Cambridge. Your professor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could hop on with us again today. I'm happy to be here. Uh, what what has happened here with these, the discovery of the 215 children's remains uh, that has finally brought us to this point uh, to, to actually open our eyes, I guess, to the realization of what's been going on for well, generations, really, in this country? Yeah, I, and, and I mean, the issue was already raised by the, the Truth and, and uh, Reconciliation Commission back in 2015, but it's, it's, I mean, it's even more striking when we see this kind of discovery, which was kind of alluded to in, in, the, in the final report of the commission. And as you mentioned, you know, it, uh, there are now questions being raised whether from an international perspective, this the whole residential school system can amount to violation of some of the most important international conventions. So one of them being the, the genocide convention, uh, and, and so I think it's horrifying, but also raising those bring to the, the the forefront those those important legal issues. I'm reminded of a line of a. Of a I Great Bob Dylan song, Blown in the Wind. How many times can somebody close their eyes and pretend they just don't see? Uh, you're, you're absolutely right, Professor. This has been in front of us, and we just haven't been paying attention or didn't want to pay attention to it. Yeah, and by way of context, uh, so I mentioned the TRC back in 2015. At the time, the, the conclusion was that the residential school system might have constituted a uh, cultural genocide. Now, now the TRC didn't have a legal mandate, so they, it couldn't you know, reach a final conclusion. So cultural genocide is not a legal term of art, but it was meant to describe you know, the destruction, the assimilation of, of a culture. But fast forward 2019, and we have another major uh, inquiry, so the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Ind Indigenous Women and Girls. Uh, and the final report then made a legal assessment said well not only the residential school system but many of the human rights violation you know uh lack of proper access to, to drinking water social you know many many of the problems that have plagued uh, indigenous communities across canada over the years from the colonial years to, to today this in their eyes amounted to again a, a genocide although the the national inquiry said we are not a proper judicial uh, forum, you know, we, we're not a court with competence, but this issue should be eventually investigated by other uh, competent tribunals. But it's it's been a long time coming. If you, this is what I the point I'm, I'm making is that the discussion about this and the treatment of indigenous people through the residential schools and, and other problems has been discussed through the lens of this very important term, you know, the genocide term. 
It's uh, interesting and worth noting, of course, by the way, I'm glad you brought that up because we just got an update this morning, of course, about the strategy going forward for the the Missing uh, and Murdered uh, Indigenous Women Committee that's been going on for quite some time. And uh, the timing, I guess, couldn't be more uh, apt uh, given what's going on with the residential school situation. Uh, Go ahead. No, no, you're absolutely right. The timing is, although I would say, you know, we've been waiting for quite some time for this action plan. Yes. the action plan was actually one of the calls to justice. So the, one of the recommendations of the National Court is saying, okay, we, we don't want to, this report to fall into, uh, you know, out of memory. So we, we want the government to, to come up with an action plan. And the goal was to have it within a year, you know, an action plan to actually implement those, those recommendations. And it's been now two years. So, I mean, better late than, than never, but it's still, it's been a long time coming. And I would add that there was international pressure on Canada to come up with that action plan and to actually react to the findings of the National Inquiry. Uh, the Organization of American States, the, the, the UN, you know, like I said, it was striking to see a National Inquiry like this say, we think this amounts to human right, massive human rights violation and genocide. So these international bodies then said, well, Canada, you have a legal obligation to investigate and respond to this. And so the action plan is then kind of a... a, a the response of the government to these uh, recommendations, to these calls for justice, as they, as they label them in the report. But as we look at, at what's going on here and the information that's starting to come out here, and as you say, a lot of it was there, known to some people, but not to the, uh, the greater population, I think. Uh, you mentioned that the bodies that investigated this before didn't have the, the legal authority or the, or the muscle to be able to do something about this. Uh, the United Nations is, is, is looking into this, as you just mentioned, and they're talking about uh, the terms of, of like genocide and a number of things like that. Who does have the power, and, and how do you get them uh, to actually go to the next step and do this investigation as you mentioned the united nations is suggesting that canada should uh that's a suggestion which canada may or may not decide to follow up on like this but who is the authority to say wait a second here i think we have a crime here yeah and that's a great question because international law is is notorious for having very few binding uh you know international courts so there is one body it's called the international court of justice and so that court is the, the the judicial branch of the un if you want and so it would be possible for one state, you know, I, I mentioned genocide was defined in international law by this convention, the Convention on Genocide. This convention uh, that Canada ratified gives jurisdiction to the international court to rule on any um, uh, questions which might arise uh, from, a, from a genocidal situation. But the issue is that another state would have to bring a suit against Canada. So the question is who would bring this this question to the international court of justice uh it's it's you know politically it's very delicate many states have their own colonial past to wrestle with uh you know right. not many states have a clean hands so, so it's a very delicate situation but the international court of justice in theory could receive a case dealing with this issue there's also another way for the, the international court of justice to actually look at this is that the un through the general assembly or the Security Council could ask the court not for a you know a contentious case between one state or the other, but for what is called a an advisory opinion. So, please, court, give us your opinion as to this general situation, and and potentially the General Assembly of the United Nations could ask the court for uh, advisory opinion as to, for example, the 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 the, the legacy of colonialism and and so on. It, it's possible, but again, you would need 50 percent of the, the the members of the United Nations to agree to this. And so politically, it's very hard to see a, an international court actually ruling on this. 
Uh, for those who may not know, and I, I'm glad you brought this up about the definition and the United Nations interest in this, uh, the uh, genocide is committed according to the convention's uh, definition here. Genocide is committed when members of a group are killed, subjected to serious physical or mental harm, put in conditions to destroy them, become victims to measures intended to prevent births and to have their children forcibly transferred to another group. That is uh, almost a word-for-word -word description of what we're finding out happened in the residential schools. You're absolutely right. So the, the, the last one, I mean, many of them could apply to different situations, but if we look at residential school, and, and it's, uh, you know, Article 2 of the Genocide Convention says one of the acts of genocide, there's, there are only five listed, so it's not like one of them forcibly transferring children of one group to another. It, that's exactly what happened. But mind you, as, as a legal academic, I have to, so one issue, one potential hurdle, let's call it that, is that the Genocide Convention was adopted in 1948, you know, after the Second World War and the genocide, you know, uh, of, uh, by Nazi Germany of the Jews and so on. And the issue is, uh, there's an issue of retroactivity. So can you qualify acts that happened, you know, residential school began uh, in the, the late uh, 1800s. So can you qualify these, act these actions that happened in the late 1800s as genocide under a definition that was created in 1948? Or can you only look at actions of Canada that happened after 1948? So that's a technical legal debate, I would say, that a court would have to wrestle with. But it doesn't take away the fact that if we simply look at the definition and we want to apply this definition to actions that happened previous, uh, you know, prior to 1945, certainly it meets the definition especially the, the definition of forcibly transferring children. That was what the residential school system was all about. Why are we so ignorant about this? Uh, it's not taught in our history, of course. I think, you know, once in a while in Canadian history, they may talk about residential schools, but the characterization, as I recall, was, was yeah, it was to, to educate these poor people that didn't have the opportunity to go to school. As a matter of fact, it, we all know the big controversy was caused last year when uh, Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole characterized them as, as simply that uh, and, and was vilified for that. We get that. I think we know a lot more about it now than we did then. But for the longest time, uh, we, we paid no attention to this, not withstanding the fact that a number of indigenous groups uh, were saying, wait, you guys, you, you're not listening to the story here. Uh, we didn't want to hear the story, did we? I, I, I think you're right. And I think one of the problems is not following through on the recommendation of those big commissions, so the, the TRC and the National Inquiry, because these commissions, so not only are they fact-finding, so they will, you know, the goal was to actually, just like the name entails, like to find out the truth about what happened. Their recommendation was that now that we have come up with, you know, these thousands and thousands of pages of testimony of, of fact-finding, their recommendation is we need to put that in, in, in and educate the population about what happened. So one of their recommendations is we need to have, uh, you know, it, it needs to be part of their curriculum in, in history and in, in high school and, and universities. So there's even one recommendation, especially for law schools, in, in, you know, law students need to be, they need to be uh, aware of, of this history in order, in order to wrestle with it. And I think, unfortunately, we're not following through on this because if we had been following through, then this educational component would have, kind of um, uh, been integrated in our collective uh, uh, knowledge of what happened. And, and so I think the reaction to the Kamloops uh, uh, tragedy shows that we have not been doing what these uh, commissions recommended, that is, educate people about the facts, about the, the truth of what happened. 
Professor, with the knowledge that we've gained on this over the last little while, and, and I'll, I'll bundle both these in here, both the, the residential school and, of course, the, the uh, missing and murdered in Indigenous women who, as you say, had their action plan uh, rolled out here today. What's the government's culpability and what's the government's responsibility here? I mean, so in terms of culpability, in, in, in legal terms, it's it's a delicate question. You know, I think there's certainly... An, so let's say we acknowledge that there has been violation, massive violations of human rights, and they are past, yes, you know, but the, the National Enquirer said that this was still ongoing in the sense that we are, you know, continuing this, this legacy through other means, through other actions that are perpetuating the, the actions that, that took place in the past. But definitely, I mean, the primary uh, responsibility is to tackle and respond to this. And I would say... And this is what I, I, I think my opinion is the same as the National Enquiry, where they say, you know, I talked about recommendations, but the National Enquiry, actually, their final report was that these are not recommendations. They are mandatory. Why? Because we have found out that, you know, most, there's serious evidence of a genocide and massive violations of human rights. And what then is the, the remedy? Well, there's an obligation under international law to remedy those by implementing the, the call for justice that we have um, uh, just outlined in, in the final report. So I think I subscribe to this view that there's an obligation, actually. These are not just recommendations that you can pick and choose. No, there's, an, there's a legal obligation to remedy the violation. And this remedy, I think, will take the form of uh, tackling the, those recommendations through the action plan. That's why it was so upsetting to see that it, it took two years to be uh, adopted, I think. An apology is not going to be enough. I mean, we know that the government has apologized for the treatment, of course, of Italians uh, in internment during the Second World War, uh, of, of Chinese and Asians in similar situations. Uh, there's, there's, this, is a, this is a heinous crime and a heinous activity here to, to know that this happened. Uh, I would think that one of the first things that I would like to see as a commitment from the from the government is to is to try to do the the work that needs to be done here to get some scope as to just how extensive this was. These schools were relevant all over the place. I mean, but there was we we talked with a survivor from one of the ones that went to, to near Brantford here just uh, when she was a young girl. They're everywhere. We don't know that there aren't grave sites in many of these, if not all of them. No, I, you're absolutely right, and I think I mean you played the clip from from uh, Justice Minister David Lamini. I think yeah. they are doing this. So uh, on that front, I think uh, they are doing the right thing, and they are doing it you know quickly. Uh, hopefully, that the, there will be resources allocated to this. I think this this is a. I, I should have mentioned, and thank you for 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 raising it up. I, I think this is the first thing actually in line with what just happened is that securing those sites and ensuring that we know the full extent of, of what happened. And again, you know, in, in historical terms, this was exactly the role of the TRC. Mind you, people don't, maybe people don't realize, but the TRC was, was not something out of the goodwill of the government. So let's, let's, you know, create a truth and Re reconciliation commission. No, it was a massive lawsuit. One of the biggest class action ever brought by survivors of residential schools against the government. And the settlement, so instead of going to, to court for a final judgment, the settlement took the form of, okay, let's, let's, instead of going to court, let's create the TRC. But it was a legal obligation to, for the government to, to support and to create uh, the TRC. But clearly, the, in the TRC's report, it said, well, well, there are things that we don't know yet. Like, we can estimate the number of people, of, of children that died in these schools, but we don't have the full extent of information because we don't have the resources to go excavate or, or you know, find through 
technology that, that remains within the, the school vicinity. So this is the chance now that we have to follow through on that that big moment in history, the TRC, that kind of initiated the work, but it's not over. So it needs to continue. Exactly. Uh, we have to leave it there for now. We're short on time. Uh, uh, great to get your perspective on this, Professor. Thank you so much for this. My pleasure. It's uh, Professor Bruno Gelanafoche from uh, University of Montreal and uh, University of Cambridge. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.